0: Fantastic, that was wonderful. So good to see all of you here. I'm glad that you've joined us today for worship, whether here in the room or by television or on the internet. So glad to see you. In just a few weeks, we will commemorate the day that Jesus of Nazareth died. We call it Good Friday, and it marks the day that this Jew named Jesus was nailed to a cross on a hill outside of the city of Jerusalem that was called the Skull. He bled there, and he died there. Nearby, they buried him in a borrowed tomb. And on the day after Jesus' death, it appeared as if whatever small mark this man had left on the world would quickly fade. That's the typical pattern for most people. When someone dies, his or her impact on the world immediately begins to recede. But not so with Jesus of Nazareth. As Jesus left the earth, his influence began to exponentially soar. A hundred years after his death, his influence was greater than any day that he lived. Five hundred years after Jesus had died, his influence was spreading to the far reaches of the globe. A thousand years after Jesus died on the cross, Jesus' legacy was laying the foundation for much of Europe. And now 2,000 years after Jesus left the earth, he has more followers in more places on this planet than ever before. John Ortberg indicates that while most religions remain centered in their original homes, the Jesus movement is different. He writes, it began in Jerusalem, but was embraced by unwashed Gentiles with such zeal that it began to move across the ancient Mediterranean to North Africa, Alexandria, and Rome. Then more barbarians took it to heart, and it began to expand to northern Europe and eventually to North America. In the past century, it has dramatically shifted again. The majority of Christians now live in the global south and the east. There is no denying that the most influential man who has ever lived is Jesus. Yaroslav Pelikan, who was the former president of the American Academy of Arts and the Sciences and a Yale uh, Yale historian, says regardless of what anyone may personally think uh, think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Jesus' influence is so significant that we struggle to quantify it because his life has affected every field of study, every every area of life, every advance in civilization. His teachings make up some of the most analyzed words that have ever been spoken. They have impacted scientists and artists, musicians and theologians, politicians, philanthropists, scientists, doctors, activists, academians, psychologists, and generals, lawyers, and poets. Condoleezza Rice states, So much has been written about our Lord that one is tempted to ask, Is there anything more to say? Well, I've got a few more minutes. So I think we can fit something in. Today we begin a study called King Jesus where we're going to look at the unique, this unique and most significant life Through the eyes of Mark's gospel. The truth is that the scriptures are still speaking about the Lord, and our lives are so desperate to hear the message about him once more, because the story about him is absolutely true. And the message he preached and the good news about his life, death, and resurrection are the most critical pieces of information that can ever be delivered. And we will essentially be doing character studies about Jesus from different moments in his three-year ministry. We're going to follow his life up until the critical moment of his arrest and trial. And on Easter Sunday, April 21st, we're going to look at King Jesus' triumph over life's final foe, death. Before we look at our passage for today, I want to say a word about the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels, of course, but Mark pays particular attention to Jesus' actions. While the other Gospels may focus more on his words or his teaching, Mark uses an action-oriented style of writing to tell us about the Lord. And he writes it in in the present tense as if it is happening right now. In fact, the word that is repeated more often in Mark than any other of the Gospels is the word immediately. Mark just is helping us to follow that this is happening and this is happening. It's a fast-paced Gospel. So God is the author of Scripture. But Mark is the man that the Lord used to pen these words. He did not know Jesus, he was not a disciple, but he was Peter's scribe or interpreter. He wrote what he heard spoken to him by Peter. And so he opens the gospel in the first first verses of the the book, describing John the Baptist and then Jesus' baptism and temptation. He then tells us about how he called his first followers, and then he began his preaching ministry. Then he began to perform miracles. He delivered a demoniac from the demon. Uh, He healed a leper. He healed a a paralytic. And so we're going to pick up right there, right after Jesus has healed this paralytic man and forgives his sins. So I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 2 this morning. And I'm going to be in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 22. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. We see in this passage that Jesus causes an uproar by introducing a new order, associating with people far from God and calling unlikely disciples to follow him. What I propose to you today is what we find in the kingdom of Jesus is an end to religion and an invitation to relationship with a king. So we're going to begin by looking very closely at the last two verses there, verses 21 and 22. As we consider this new system that Jesus is instituting. In some ways, these two verses, 21 and 22, don't quite fit with the rest of the narrative. Verses 14 through 20. Mark is often accused of not writing in a very orderly fashion. But the reason which we have on record from writings as early as 325 A.D. Is that Mark wrote as Peter taught. So as Peter taught, that's what he wrote down. The Apostle John is to have said this about Mark. He said he had not heard the Lord, nor had he followed him, but later on followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles. So that Mark did nothing wrong in writing down single points as he remembered them. So perhaps that's why we find these two verses right here, just kind of tucked in here. But I think there's also a message here that's applicable from what's happening in the narrative of Jesus' life at this moment. We're learning about this old way of sorts with regards to John's disciples as well as maybe even more importantly the old way of the Pharisees in contrast with the new way being presented in Jesus' teaching and ministry. So he uses this analogy about fabric in verse 21 and about wineskins in verse 22. Now I will admit I don't know much about sowing or storing wine. It's just not my strong suit. But I understand the principle here. The garment will tear when it's washed, and the patch of new, stronger fabric begins to shrink. Old wineskins that are already stretched to their limits and now inflexible will burst when you put new wine into it, and it starts to expand or ferment there. So that's what he's talking about. And the idea is that the new that Jesus brings is incompatible with the old. He has not come to patch up um, uh, an old system. He is not simply um, reforming this old way of life. Jesus is saying that something new is occurring. Something new is taking place. His message is turning this religious system of the day on its head. And it's frustrating plenty of people. And he's clear that he is bringing a new system to bear into the world. The king is coming. And he's bringing his kingdom into the world. That's what's happening judaism not just that of the pharisees because he mentions john the baptist disciples as well but judaism as a whole is the old garment and the old wineskin that's what he's talking about and jesus has not come to repair it or to trans uh, but he's come to transform it he is bringing a new covenant so there was an old covenant now jesus is bringing a new covenant so there needs to be new wineskin there needs to be new garment And I think there's an important point to be made here. This is not because the old way was evil. It's because the old way needed to be made new. The old covenant, it needs a revolution. So one commentator writes, Old wineskins are no match for new, still-fermenting wine. Similarly, the new wine of rescue and riches for all who are willing to accept these blessings, even for publicans and sinners, must be poured into new, that is, fresh, strong wineskins. So Jesus is transforming the way those around him saw God and understood the relationship to him. Religion, as um, they knew it, is coming to an end. Religion is changing. And he also comes to transform their hearts. He doesn't just come to mend the sinner's heart. He actually comes to give them a new heart. Ezekiel speaks about this. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we read, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Perhaps today you're listening to these words, and you've tried to make Jesus fit into your life, into your old heart. You've thought, well, I'll go to church, You know, I'll I'll still pray before meals or at night. I'll give homage to the scriptures as being important words. But you kind of keep the same old principles or the same priorities or the same values. You just have a side of Jesus in your life. Well, Jesus doesn't come only as a humble servant and as a gentleman. He also comes as a conquering king. He does not want a corner of your heart. He comes to claim dominion over all of your life. That's what a king does. His kingdom has come to rule and to reign. And our old way of life is incompatible with the new that Jesus is bringing. I think that's what he's saying. We need a new heart. So Jesus introduces this new system, and we notice it in the company that he starts to keep. A group of unlikely associates. So we're going to turn back to verses 14 and 15 here. The context of verse 13 tells us that after Jesus healed this paralytic, or maybe just prior to this moment here, depending on what the order really was, Jesus had gone out to the seashore. People were drawing in to hear him. He was teaching them. This is likely around Capernaum, which is right at the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus passes by a toll booth, a a, a taxing center, you know, a place where they would collect taxes For those who are maybe coming in from outside cities or towns like the Decapolis. So Jesus walks by this toll booth. And inside the toll booth is a man named Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now most believe that this disciple is the one that we know of as Matthew. Um, Others believe or suspect that Levi is really James, the son of Alphaeus. But we are going to assume it's Matthew. That's not critical information for what we're studying but we do know this man here becomes a disciple of Jesus. So Levi's in the tax booth because he's a tax collector. This does not mean that he's a Roman who uh, works necessarily for the Romans, but is more likely an agent of Herod Antipas, the kind of the governor of the area. And he had the rights to tax people uh, in that region. Well, you already know, probably... Well, maybe it's unlike today, but you already know that tax collectors were kind of a special group of despised people in Jesus' day. This is not somebody they enjoyed to spend time around. In fact, they really despised them. They were famous for being dishonest. They cheated people out of their money, and they got away with it. it. So the government would say you can tax this much on these items. And then the tax collector would say, well, we're going to jack the price up. And they would tax higher. And they got to keep whatever was left over. And that was the system of the day. So they were also seen as corroborating with the Roman authorities. So people just despised them. They were in a group of hated people unlike others. So Jesus is walking by. He says specifically to the tax collector that's there in the booth, Levi, he says, follow me. Now, this would be the standard call that would be issued from a rabbi to a disciple. So he saw somebody, he would say, follow me. The only problem is that tax collectors are not ideal candidates for discipleship. They love money more than righteousness. Nonetheless, Jesus calls, and what happens? The scripture says, and he got up and followed him. You have to wonder, what motivated him to do that? I don't know if when you read that, that's what I think. I think, what was going on in his head? Did he already know Jesus? Had he heard about Jesus? Or was this just some strange man that walks by and says, follow me? And he just, what's going on here? Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, the text is not interested in psychological explanations for the faithful decisions of a person. Why not? Because there is only one good reason for the proximity of call and deed. Jesus Christ himself. It is he who calls. That's why the tax collector follows. So it's not that this was some great appeal to go do something fantastic. It was that Jesus was calling, and Levi said, I want to be behind that guy. And so he gets up and follows. Earlier in the book, this book of Mark, Mark tells us about the first followers that Jesus called. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were fishermen, just like Levi. They left their nets, they left their jobs, their responsibilities, there on the seashore and came and followed Jesus, So Levi follows suit, does the same thing. But what he's doing is actually more dramatic. Peter, Andrew, James, and John could return to fishing, right? You just walk away for a while. Some of you do that occasionally, walk away from fishing for a while, only to return later to see if they finally start biting again. Levi walks away from a desk job. They're not going to hold the job open for him. He walks away to follow, so it's a little bit more dramatic. In fact, Luke kind of, clarifies for us in Luke five twenty eight, speaking of Levi he says and he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him Bonhoeffer says those called leave everything they have not in order to do something valuable instead they do it simply for the sake of the call itself because otherwise they could not walk behind Jesus Many people analyze, should I follow Jesus based on what might happen to me? But it sounds like Levi just said, I want to be behind him. So just being behind him or being with him is better than the alternative. So this transformed cheat, Levi, now demonstrates generosity. And he hosts a party in his home. Verse 15 says, and it happened that he, this is Jesus, was reclining at the table in his, this is Levi, Levi's house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. So they were reclining around the table. So this, this meant they were dining, probably formally dining together. Can you imagine a formal dinner party, and everybody's just laying around the table to eat? That, my kids would love this, I think, but uh, th- this is just, they already do it sometimes, right? But that's the custom of the day. So they're reclining around the table to dine together, and... Um, So it sounds like Jesus not only called Levi to follow him, he also befriended him. And not only did he befriend him, he hung out with Levi's friends. And these friends were labeled as tax collectors and sinners. Well, we all know what kind of outcasts the tax collectors were. But what about sinners? I have to say, I've always imagined that Jesus was dining with criminals here. With prostitutes, with rabble-rousers. And maybe they were. But in the context of who the Pharisees labeled as sinners, these were more than likely just ordinary people who didn't uphold the oral teaching of the law that the Pharisees upheld. They were outcasts of sort in the religious system of Israel. In fact, it might mean that they simply didn't practice the ritual washing that the Pharisees expected. In other words, they ate without washing their hands. That's who they were, sinners. Now, some of you are germaphobes, and you're thinking, I get it finally. I've always wondered why the Pharisees were so judgmental towards these sinners, but now I understand I would roll my eyes at them too if they didn't wash their hands before they ate. My good friend Philip is a real germaphobe, and he also, I told him this week, I said, you would have made a great Pharisee because you just would really judge those people who failed to wash their hands before they ate. I don't know about you. But it's really interesting to me that Jesus had this magnetic power over these religious outcasts. The verse says, For there were many of them, and they were following him. People who appeared to be far from God were unusually drawn to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? The least likely candidates for being around a holy man was who was trying to get close. And Jesus seemed to be drawn to those Who were far from God. In other words, Jesus liked people who were unlike him. And people unlike Jesus, when they got close to him, they liked him. That's just how it worked. Well, there are plenty of people who are turned off to religion, to church, and to Jesus. But I believe, more likely than not, it's just that they have not gotten close enough to get to know Jesus. Because people who appear to be far from God, And unlike Jesus, when all of a sudden they spent time with him, were drawn to him. He simply called, follow me, and grown men left responsibilities of all sorts to come follow after him. This is not the Pied Piper that had children chasing them. These were grown men who saw there's something happening here, and I want to be near it. Well, do you believe that Jesus is still calling today? Do you believe that he is still rescuing sinners? Do you believe that he is saving those who are headed towards a destructive end? Do you believe Jesus is still doing that today? Then why are you not living on mission with him? Why are you not sharing the gospel? Why are you not inviting the lost to respond to the love of God that's found in the person of Jesus I was thinking as we prepare for Easter I want to invite you over the next seven weeks to live on mission by just asking yourself who is my one there might be dozens but who's the one who's the one person in your life classmate co-worker neighbor family member friend stranger whoever it might be just one person That you can say, I'm going to pray for them regularly. I'm going to look for an opportunity to share the gospel with them. I'm going to look for an opportunity to bring them with me to church. Who's your one? I hope that in Sunday school over the next couple of weeks, you'll just make a commitment there. You'll write down the name. This is it. This is who I'm praying for. This is who I'm putting in front of my eyes, and I'm committing to y'all. This is my one. This is my one. And maybe you, you would pray about it. Maybe you would open opportunity, look for opportunity to share the gospel. Maybe you'd invite him here. Easter Sunday's coming. People come to church like crazy on Easter. That'd be a great day to invite him. So who's your one? Now Jesus reminds us that the least likely candidate is often the one uh, is often the one that he's calling to himself. So do you believe that Jesus is still saving those who are far from him? Then who is your one? This new system that Jesus introduces and the unlikely associates he chose to be around was not appreciated by everyone. We see right here in Mark that an organized opposition begins to form. In verse 16 it says, When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? So some Pharisees and disciples of the Pharisees saw this party and they saw who Jesus was there with and they were appalled the pharisees um, these were jews who were committed to the oral teaching of the law so they were very careful about who they would associate with who they would invite into their homes who they would dine with so they see jesus and their first question is why and i have to tell you i think that's a fine question sometimes we get offended whenever people want to question us about our beliefs and they ask why well that's a great opportunity to answer i think and so they say why well, Jesus is turning the world upside down. So, of course, they're thinking, why would he do that? But not only that, it goes on. It says in verse 18 that they questioned him again. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Now Jesus is being confronted by an unusual coalition. Did you notice who's together there? John's disciples and the Pharisees. And they came together. They weren't normally aligned, but in this moment they were. And they found it offensive, I guess, that Jesus' disciples did not fast. The verse says that they were fasting. The idea is that they made a habit of it. Now, the law didn't really command that you had to fast on a regular basis. Once a year, there was a time set apart for that. But the Pharisees, we believe, fasted every Monday and Thursday and made a show of it. John's disciples could have been fasting because John the Baptist had been arrested, or maybe he had been killed before this, and they were fasting because he was gone. But Jesus' disciples didn't do this, so opposition to Jesus begins to form. In fact, in verse 24, the Pharisees get upset because they find out that Jesus on the Sabbath is going through a field and picking grain to eat. And then later on in chapter 3, Jesus begins to heal somebody on the Sabbath, And their heads start to spin. In fact, in Mark 3, 6, it says the Pharisees, after this, went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So the end is beginning. We're only in the third chapter. It's interesting to me that the people who appeared to be close to God were the ones who were repelled by Jesus. You would have thought they would have been the ones drawn to him, but that's just not it. When King Jesus comes... He brings a new system which attracts unlikely associates and repels a forming opposition from him. And it's in this moment that he articulates a a clear calling or a purpose for his life and ministry. So the Pharisees ask, why would he dine with the sinners and tax collectors? And in verse 17 we read, And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. As Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, he healed the worst of diseases. We know he healed lepers. He healed those that were possessed by demons, people that were laying on mats that were uh, paralyzed. He asked them to get up. He opened a new avenue of forgiveness. That paralytic that he, he healed, before he healed him, he said his sins were forgiven. Before he had done any of the sacrificial rituals, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And in this passage, we see that he gathers together a fellowship of people whom the religious elite considered hopeless and possibly irredeemable. So they're thinking, you're hanging out with these folks? One commentator writes, the Pharisees expected sinners to be destroyed when the kingdom of God came. But Jesus did not show the slightest interest in pronouncing judgment upon the unclean, the irreligious, or the morally bankrupt. His intention was clear. He had come to heal and restore the Pharisees could not understand why for the life of them Jesus would associate with sinners and folks with deep spiritual needs but Jesus not associating with sinners would be like a doctor who said well go get well once you're better then come back and let's talk about your health right it'd be like Jesus saying hey go get yourself cleaned up then we'll talk about your spiritual health but he doesn't do that I want you to notice that Jesus says I did not come to call the righteous That makes people think that Jesus wasn't coming for the religious people because they were righteous. They didn't need him. Was that true? Were the Pharisees righteous enough on their own that they did not need King Jesus? That's not what he's saying here. In fact, Jesus is arguing that we are all sick. Every one of us is in need of healing. If you listen to the way we speak, you'll start to hear this us versus them language. You will hear one group blame another group for all the problems in the world, you know, especially in politics. You turn on the TV, one, you know, one channel blames the blue states, the other channel blames the red states, and then, you know, one talking head blames it on the extremists, and another Twitter feed blames it on the moderates. But even inside the church, who do you blame for the ills of society? If you pay attention to Jesus' message, you'll begin to notice he spends little time looking for a scapegoat. He is most concerned with how I can save a whole lot of you not just some of you we talk about inclusive in our culture today as a very high value well jesus was inclusive he did not separate sins from super sins he did not separate the respectable wrongdoers from the irredeemable he was radically inclusive he said you're all sick and you all need to be healed so do you see yourself as righteous on your own Well, the scriptures say that no one is righteous on their own, not even one. It says the righteous will live by faith. So it's not going to come through right living, but by faith. So King Jesus brings a new system. He attracts unlikely associates, which causes opposition to form, and he clearly states his his message to heal the sick. The new system is the end of religion, and it's an invitation to relationship with the King. King Jesus comes as a friend of sinners, not to wipe out the sinners. But Jesus did not only come as a friend of sinners, he also came to save sinners. Jesus alludes to his death in verse 20. He says there'll be a day when he's gone. Well, he's pointing already to his death. Jesus died on the cross. He shed his blood so that his friends, sinners, could find forgiveness. Today, King Jesus is still inviting tax collectors He's still inviting sinners. He's still inviting the self-righteous to come follow him, to allow his kingdom to reign in their life. Not get cleaned up and then come, but to simply come into a relationship by receiving and believing in his name. This is not a call to religion. It's a call to relationship with King Jesus. Do you know him? His mission on earth was to bring healing to sinners, and that includes you. Father, we thank you so much for your word that's preserved for us. Now, God, as we come to this time of invitation, we pray that you would act. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to an invitation. I know that some of you need to respond to the gospel. You never have. What's well, as simply as believing and receiving Jesus. And so today, if God's speaking to you about that, I'd love for you to respond. We'll have some staff members down here who, and we'll send you back so you can be encouraged, so you can respond. Some of you might need to come to join the church. Maybe to follow in believer's baptism or to make some sort of other commitment. Here's the point, though. When King Jesus comes, when his kingdom comes to bear against our lives, every one of us is expected to respond. So how will you respond? Let me invite you to stand. As our choir sings, you respond.